Now, I am particularly appreciative of this opportunity because, indeed, it looked like I was not going to get here. And I want to share just a few words about the difficulty in getting here because I think it is an ideal picture of the America that we live in. I was supposed to come down on Saturday, but on Saturday morning we got an email notice that the flight from Dallas to here was canceled and that they would be going immediately to work to make rearrangements, which of course they never did. But Todd got busy and managed to book me on a flight yesterday. I don't like to travel on the Lord's Day, but I don't like to say I'll come somewhere to speak and not show up. And so I went to the airport, left home at nine in the morning, and then found that the flight was delayed 15 minutes and then 30 minutes and then an hour. And they didn't cancel it, but finally, at 2.30, they said, well, you obviously can't get to Baton Rouge on the flight that's scheduled, but we can get you there at 11.30 at night. And then the girl said to me, I promise you, you will get there on that flight. Well, one is not inclined to believe airline clerks, <laughs> not if they've done any traveling. But she said it with such sincerity, I believed her. But I didn't understand until this morning why I believed her. This flight was bound to arrive because it was full. There's one thing that governs the airline industry, and that's greed, nothing else. Now, can you imagine the Pony Express being governed by greed? Would we be here today? Would this nation even exist if our fathers had been governed by greed? There were men with a vision of making a fortune, but they knew that integrity was part of making that fortune. But today, there's, there's no question about integrity. That matters nothing whatsoever, not in the world of business, not in the world of government, and by and large, not even in the church. Success, and usually that's greed, or numbers, is the dominating factor. But now, the thing that gets to me continually is when I hear churchmen acknowledge the difficulty that we're in as a nation, they are continually blaming either politics, education, or media. But honestly, I do not believe there is one thing wrong with America that was not first wrong in the church. I believe that the church is leading the nation to destruction.
And I'm not talking about them, but us. Recently, I have been asking with greater and greater frequency, what does God want? Now, as I listen to the church, I don't hear the church stating what God wants. I hear the church stating what they want. And there is a huge difference. Some of the men that I talk to, some of the men in supposed leadership, almost sound as if they think that when God built heaven, he overbuilt. So he's got all this vacant space, and he's not able to fill it. And so he's challenged them to fill heaven for him. And obviously, there's a reward system in place, and the more you get there, the greater your reward. And so you make the terms so cheap, so shoddy, that any sin-loving rebel can nod his head in agreement with certain historic truth and be called a Christian. And he is assured that he's a Christian, and he's told, don't ever let anybody, not Satan, not your pastor, not your parents, not even God himself convince you that you're not a Christian because now that you've accepted Christ, you are. Now, one would be hard-pressed to find that kind of nonsense in Scripture, but it's the prevailing nonsense in the evangelical world. And nobody knows for sure the accuracy of the statistics that are compiled, but to... All kinds of estimates are made in terms of what portion of the church might truly be Christian, and I certainly don't know any more for certain than you do, but uh, there are Southern Baptist leaders who have confessed that every indication is that at least 70% of all Southern Baptists are as lost as Satan himself. And anybody in his right mind knows things are better in the Southern Baptist Convention than they are in the Presbyterian Church or the Congregational Church or the Methodist Church or the Lutheran Church. And I wonder how many who allow statistics like that to enter their heads and perhaps even pass out their mouths, have ever asked this question, would it be possible to have 70% of the members unregenerate and 100% of the pastors regenerate? There has to be some correlation I would not pretend that the figures have to match exactly, but there does have to be some relationship. 
And when you've got 5,000 members in a church, and there are only 1,000 that come on Sunday night, and if in the unlikely event they still have Sunday evening service, there's only 200, and if in the even more unlikely event they still have a prayer meeting, and they're not more than 20, you know, 5,000, 1,220. Something's wrong. And what is it really that's wrong? And is there any sense in blaming somebody else? Now, as children, we were very good at that. And perhaps, in a sense, it was almost understandable. But for men to be blaming somebody else for what is clearly and precisely our fault, it makes no sense. <laughs> and especially when so much is at stake, eternity itself, the kingdom of God, and the heart desire of our king. I ask, what does God really want? I believe that God wants a people who listen and obey. I believe that a Christian is a person who listens and obeys. And anything less than that leaves the person unconverted. But how many of the people that uh, you minister to listen to God and obey? I'm prepared to list the questions that uh, I want to call to your attention. Leading to the scriptures that we're going to be looking at. In a conference near Memphis last week, I had a lengthy talk with a prominent Christian man in the area there who was essentially saying, it's too late. Now, that's a, a very large view of the American church. It's too late. You know, we could ask, is the picture of America now one of a nation in the early stages of self-destruction or in the latter stages of self-destruction, or have we actually already passed the point of no return? Now, many are saying we've passed the point of no return. They say things have never been worse before in history than they are right now. Now, that's a ridiculous lie, but many people would rather believe a lie than the truth. In the 1730s, when a young man going to Oxford University 
could not find a single person there who could tell him the way to Christ. That's a lot worse than things are here because you can't go to any university state in America but what you'll find a host of people who can direct you to the Savior. But when you embrace the false notion that it's too late, then you become idiotic. Often I will have somebody step up to me and announce that it's too late. And that their great prayer is that Christ will hurry up and return and rescue them from this rotten mess. And I invariably ask them, do you have any unsaved children? And more often than not, and than not they say, yes. And I say to you, to them, you are such a rotten person that you're praying to escape the mess yourself and you don't care that your own offspring is rushing pell-mell to hell? But is it too late? Have we gone past the point of no return? And if it's not too late, are your actions on a continuing basis appropriate to the hour in which we live? I don't see how anybody could deny that we are in a state of emergency. And it would certainly not be an error to say that in our lifetime, things were never worse in this country than they are right now. But does any of that suggest it's too late? Or does that suggest we've been going in the wrong direction far too long? Let's turn. But fundamental to that are the questions I suggested that I would like to ask you. Questions to ponder, at least to some degree. But before I do that, I don't think it would be inappropriate for me to say to you that if you would like to object to anything that I say this morning or to question anything I say or to add or ask for qualification of anything I say, don't hesitate to interrupt me. I don't believe I'll forget where I'm at. I would urge you to be polite. Let me finish a sentence. Wave your hand or something, letting me know you have something to say. But uh, I won't object. I would caution you to be sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> but the questions now that I think are immensely consequential to facing the reality of where we're at at the moment. This simple question, how many gods are there? Now, it seems like an almost absurd question in a setting like this, but I get the impression that there are two gods that are worshipped 
in the American evangelical movement. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was described by an unregenerate Methodist bishop as a dirty, bloody bully. Now, evangelicals don't talk that way. I hope. But they might as well when it comes right down to it. Because if you believe that the God of the New Testament is a different God than the God of the Old Testament, you are demonstrating your gross stupidity, your lack of wisdom, which is connected with your lack of the fear of God, which obviously is the beginning of wisdom. But as I said, I don't hear anybody in the evangelical movement saying there are two gods. But what I do hear regularly, though not stated succinctly, not plain speech, but I do hear them saying, God has gotten control of his disposition. He has grown up. He's no longer the angry God of wrath of the Old Testament, but the Santa Claus God of grace of the New Testament. Again, people don't use that exact terminology, but the bulk of the preaching that I listen to seems to imply that God is too good to get angry. Do any of you believe that God is too good to get angry? That the grace of God now overwhelms the holiness of God? Or that because of his antiquity, God is no longer able to enforce his own rules and regulations? Well, no, we, we're not likely to embrace that kind of nonsense exactly. But we might be handling the word of God like those who think God has changed, who no longer believe that the God of the Bible is truly the unchanging God. I want to ask you, do you believe that the God of the Bible is the unchanging God? As he was, so he is, and so he will always be. But he most certainly has not grown up, not gotten control of his disposition, but is precisely now as he was and will forever be. Well, now, if that's true, it ought to have some powerful impact on our preaching. And as I've said already, most of the men that I listen to don't act like they believe that the God of the Old Testament is truly the God of today. And as I've already said, when we ask the question, 
What does God want? It seems so absolutely clear that God wants a people who listen and obey. But let me ask you, do your people, the people that you minister to, listen and obey? I find that the most common thing said to me after I preach is, oh, that was interesting. I'll have to think about that. You have to think about it. When God gives a command, you have to think about it. But what happens when I preach is not the issue that I'm concerned about this morning. It's what happens when you preach. Now, we've gone a long ways to try to prove to the church world that we're one of the boys. It's amazing to me how pastors want to fit in. Well, I'm not one of the boys. I know that God called me to preach his word, and that made me very separate and very distinct from the boys. And I know that preaching is authority. I know that real preaching is when my heart is touched by God's heart and the people's heart is touched by God's heart through my heart. I think there are a lot of us that don't know the difference between teaching and preaching. I hear a lot of guys talking about expository preaching, and I don't see any indication that they know what they're doing. It sounds to me like they're teaching, and they think teaching is preaching. I was in a conference not long ago when the major speaker said, there's no difference between teaching and preaching. Well, there is a difference. The audience is here. And when you teach, they're still there. But hopefully better informed. But when you preach, they're here and they belong there. And the preaching moves them from where they are to where they belong. And it's not the opinion of a man being shared with people, giving them the privilege to weigh it and say, oh, well, I don't think he knows, knows what he said. Or I don't think it's as important as he makes it sound. No, when we preach, God speaks through us. And people know they've heard from the Lord. And if that's not the case, then there's still room, by God's grace, for repentance. So questions we need to look at. Here's another question I'd like to ask you to think of. Did Christ come to save people from hell 
Or did he come to save them from sin? Now think of that. Did Christ come to save people from hell? Or did he come to save them from sin? What you believe about God is very much involved in that question. Is God as dumb as we are? As feeble-minded and incapable of sound decision? I believe there's no question what the Bible portrays, that God made a hell as a place in which to incarcerate forever in great suffering those who would not repent and believe. But I hear the gospel stated in such a way that a person can escape the penalty with the problem still in place. But they can still be a sinner, still enjoy their sin, still live perpetually in their sin, and yet be saved. So God is so dumb, he creates a hell in which to incarcerate the unrepentant forever. Then he sends his son to die in the sinner's place, and he saves the sinner from the penalty, and he leaves them with the problem. I wonder how many of you are guilty of that kind of nonsense. If you've got members in your church who are not walking with Christ, who are living disobedient lives, who don't really care what the king wants, God ordained church discipline for people like that. But most evangelical churches don't practice discipline. People don't want discipline. And obviously to build the church we got to give the people what they want. But here's another question. And this comes now uh, directly before the scripture that we're going to look at. Which is more highly accountable, the Old Testament believer or the New Testament believer? Have you thought of that? Is your preaching profoundly impacted by that question? Now, the scriptures are plain to whom much is given, much is required. I step up to you, Michael, and I ask, who got more, more, Moses or you? Yeah. And you, sir, who got more, Abram or you? Every New Testament believer has more 
than any saint of the Old Testament. Now, how could we have more and yet less be expected of us? But Christianity, as it's presented by most so-called evangelicals, doesn't expect anywhere near as much as Moses felt obliged. Or Abram. Or name any other person listed, say, in Hebrews 11. Everybody in Hebrews 11 was given something to do, and their doing it was credited to them as faith. The simple truth is, faith is not passive acquiescence. It is not mental assent. Faith is active obedience. I love the words that Mary spoke at that first miracle in Cana of Galilee. Probably Nathaniel's wedding. The disciples were all present. Cana was the home of Nathaniel. And when they ran out of wine, Mary said to the servants, referring to Christ, whatever he says to you, do it. So he said, take these water pots. Those pots contain somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. Now, that lets us know this is not some simple family wedding. This is a major event. I mean, they've already been drinking wine to the point where it's all gone, and now Christ says, fill the water pots, and he makes at least 120 more gallons of wine. But that's not my focus. My focus is the words of Mary. Whatever he says to you, Now, why did she speak that way? She spoke that way because she knew who Christ was. And we've got a lot of people who say they're Christians who do not know who Christ is. He is the king. Can you imagine yourself a subject of the king, and when the king gives an order, you say, oh, that's interesting, I'll think about it. Most of us don't have much respect for the president of the United States, but even so, we would not treat him in the same cavalier fashion that most professed Christians treat Christ. Christ did not come to save from hell. He came to save from sin when Joseph was struggling with what to do about Mary, having learned that she was pregnant and being a righteous man and not willing to harm her, he's weighing personally the question, what should I do? And the angel said, go ahead and marry the girl. And when the child is born, call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from 
their sin. Not from the penalty, but from the problem. So that leads me then to the passages I would like to ask you to join me in considering. I've tried to make it clear. I don't believe that the Old Testament is merely a historical record. I believe it is as much the word of God as any portion of the new. And the only parts of the Old Testament that we have any right to set aside in terms of their relevancy are those portions that God himself has made it clear were so fulfilled in Christ that they are no longer applicable. I think the book of Hebrews gives us splendid help in that, and it doesn't leave any grounds for wondering what is still in place, what is still required of us, and what has been fulfilled. And I love the notion that is so clear in Hebrews that it is not how you start that counts nearly as much as how you finish. Christianity is not a good beginning, but a glorious ending. And we've got all kinds of people we've called Christians who haven't even begun, and yet they're assured falsely of a glorious end. I'd like to ask you to turn to one of the Old Testament prophets who, it seems to me, speaks with incredible authority and power uh, to our day. I have myself uh, been engaged in uh, a considerable study of the book of Jeremiah uh, over the last uh, number of months and been teaching a small class of earnest people out of this book, and I have found it an amazing experience. And uh, although I had read it often before and have considered it for a very long time to be as much the word of God as Romans, it has come to me in a much more powerful fashion of late. So I want to ask you to turn to Jeremiah, and uh, I'd like to read uh, from the second or the third chapter, uh, chapter 3. So Jeremiah 3. God says if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been violated by the roads you have set for them like an Arab in the desert and you have polluted the land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. 
Have you not just now called to me, my father, thou art the friend of my youth? Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and you have done evil things and you had your way. Now, I don't need to tell you, I trust that in the book of Jeremiah, there are incredible statements made, statements about the prophets and the priests, statements that make it perfectly clear that they were sold out to iniquity, that each man had one real purpose, and that was to gain what he himself wanted. So they could not be called shepherds because they'd gladly devoured the sheep whenever it was to their advantage. Statements of incredible importance. But in this next section, we have a picture of God's call to repentance. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, In the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. Would it be correct to say that the American church is a harlot? Now look, we may not be among that crowd that's blaming everything that's wrong on the media or the educational system or the politicians. But have we really come to grips with the problem? The American church has become like the harlot to whom Jeremiah addresses these words. Israel first, then Judah, that ceased to listen and ceased to obey and turned aside to sin. And I thought, verse 7, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. We have not only turned rotten ourselves as the nation of churches, but we are corrupting the entire world with the nonsense that we proclaim as Christianity. So we've got millions of converts throughout the world who are no more converted than the bulk of our converts in America. Almost none asking, what does the Lord want? and then giving him what he wants. It came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery 
with stones and trees. And yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Now look, I'm going to break in on the reading and speak out of my own heart. I have been in the work for much longer than most of you have lived. In the early years, back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, it was a very common thing for me when I preached to see the whole congregation bathed in tears. It was not exceptional or remarkable when dozens were profoundly converted in a single week. It had nothing to do with me. It had always and only to do with the Word and the Spirit. But now I see places where there's a sudden revival of interest and concern. We have prayer meetings that spring up, some very largely attended, but then they dwindle. I don't see anything leading to permanent change. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not in despair. I haven't lost hope. I honestly believe a great revival will come. I believe it has to come. There are promises that cannot be fulfilled apart from an awakening of the church. How will the Jewish world ever be provoked to jealousy by the ungodly church of today? But what I see is little flurries of the rising interest and concern soon squelched by another wave of worldly wickedness. And that's what this passage has just spoken of. The treachery of Judah, bad enough that Israel went so far astray but then followed by treacherous Judah. So the Lord, verse 11, spoke to the prophet, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, and I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Now, is that supply suggesting he was not angry? No, of course not. Only that God doesn't take pleasure in anger. 
he takes vastly more pleasure in pouring out his grace and his forgiveness. But we're living at a time that very clearly parallels what Jeremiah was experiencing. And the words that God spoke to Jeremiah are largely applicable to our situation today. And so there's a call here for return. Go, verse 12, proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord, for I am master to you and I will take you from one, one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. Then... I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And it shall be in those days when you're multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord and it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. And at that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it for the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. For they shall not walk anymore in the stubbornness of their evil heart. Well, I'll not read the whole, but I'm hoping that you get a picture that Israel and Judah have removed themselves from that position that God wanted them in, the position of a people who listened and obeyed. And because of that, they left him no choice. Now, here's the thing we've got to face. When a nation goes rotten like America has gone, God is not at a loss what to do. God has been through this before. This is not the first time around for him. He knew what to do the first time, and he certainly knows what to do this time. When God is angry with his own people because they will not listen and will not obey and obviously cannot repent if they will not listen and obey, God brings them under judgment. 
And most of you are as aware as I am that the judgments of God throughout Scripture take on two basic forms. Either they are remedial or they are final. Now, because I don't have the joy and the privilege of knowing most of you, it would not be safe to assume you know everything on this subject that you ought to. And even if there's only one who's not enlightened, I better take the time to spell it out. A remedial judgment is a gracious judgment. It's a corrective judgment. It's like remedial reading in the public school. When a remedial reading class is announced, is it saying, we have now expelled all the students that are behind in their reading skill? No. No, it's saying, we're now offering a special opportunity for those who are behind in their reading skills to catch up. So we're speaking about the remedial judgments of God, judgments that are intended to enable people to catch up, catch up with God, catch up with repentance, catch up with obedience. Now, clearly, we are a nation under remedial judgment. Very often, God's method in remedial judgment was to allow his enemies to harm his beloved. That's a pretty straightforward thing. God whispers in the ear of the Philistines, Israel is yours, help yourself. And they destroy vast numbers. Or... Living in these days, God says to the Muslims, the Christian church, so-called, will not listen and obey. Help yourself. And so we're overrun with Muslims. We're so stupid and stupidity, blindness is part of sin. It is inevitable when a nation is proud that it is also thoughtless. Pride is, after all, a breeder's sin. It has incredible capacity to produce more and more and more sin. So here we find ourselves under the remedial judgment of God. So we got all these stupid people in the church saying, it's too late. It's never too late when there's a remedial judgment. The purpose of the remedial judgment is to bring us up to date, to catch up with our repentance. I'm asking you now, have you been preaching the way you ought to preach in an emergency hour like this? Most of the guys that I know are so busy distributing comfort among their people and the last thing in the world a person sound asleep needs is another sermon on comfort. This is a time when some serious kicking should take place, when people should be aroused out of 
their slumber. I, I, I'd like to ask you to think now of this. Paul gave instruction to Timothy, preach the word. Now, look, being desperately honest, how do I know if I have preached the word? How do you know? All of you preachers think you're preaching the word. Are you preaching the word? Or are you simply preaching from the word? Or about the word? Have you ever even considered the difference between preaching the word and preaching about it? Or preaching from it? And how can I ascertain accurately whether I have preached from or about or have actually preached the word? Well, now, the word gives statements about itself that are immensely useful. The word describes itself as a hammer. The word describes itself as a fire. The word describes itself as a sword. If you preach and nobody's hammered, nobody's set on fire, nobody is pierced through by the sharp two-edged sword, you have great reason to doubt that you have preached the word. Whenever you preach, there ought to be people who feel the hammer of the word now, a lot of the men that I talk with, the first time a person shows signs of distress, they back up and try to smooth things over. Thank God our fathers were wiser than that. When people began to weep, then they poured on the burden. They, you know, in the earlier days of this country, they didn't preach the word and make the convert on one and the same occasion. It was very common for men to be under the conviction of sin for days and days, even weeks at a time, struggling. Some were under such profound conviction, they couldn't even get out of their beds. But now, we don't want anything like that. We, we want an immediate conversion. And so what we get is a hypocritical response, something that takes the pressure off for the moment. But I'm telling you, when you preach the word, there is the hammering, there is the sword piercing, there is the fire occurring. And I wouldn't be surprised, but what some of you ought to get alone with the Lord for a protracted season and do some serious repenting about what you call preaching, which is leading the nation downward instead of upward. When we're under remedial judgment, as we are right now, surely, if ever urgent, true preaching was mandatory, it's at this time. Now, granted, people don't want to hear it, but so what? When it begins to take root and effect, then there will be a growing number of hungry, thirsty people who will want to hear at any price. 
But here in the statement that we read, uh, the Lord makes it clear through Jeremiah, then I will give you pastors after my own heart. I, I, I am not in a position to be critical of you, only to be helpful and to ask you to think. Would you dare to describe yourself as a pastor after God's own heart? But I've spoken about remedial judgments. And I, I simply want to give the other side now. A, a remedial judgment, as I said, is gracious, it's corrective, it gives opportunity and time for repentance and return to the Lord. But a nation under remedial judgment left unheeded eventually sees that remedial judgment turn into a final judgment. A final judgment is a judgment of death and destruction. We have some powerful illustrations of this in Scripture. Just think about Ananias and Sapphira. When Ananias came before Peter, and Peter quizzed him as to that piece of property, and uh, Ananias set forth his lie. How long did it take God to deal with Ananias? Would that have been called a remedial judgment? No, most certainly not. And Sapphira, how long did it take God to deal with her? Now look, I'm trying to say simply this. We are a nation under God's remedial judgment. That's a glorious opportunity then for every one of us who knows and loves Christ to call the nation to its knees, to stop toying around, to get down to the serious business of telling people, this is what God wants. You must listen and you must obey. He is Lord, and not only Lord, but Lord of Lords. He is king, and not only king, but king of kings. How do you dare disobey this one you address as Lord? But there's a second passage I wanted to call to your attention because it is so profoundly important and so practical for the hour in which we live. I'd like to ask you to turn to the 13th chapter. In between that portion we just read and chapter 13, we have the Lord saying to Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. I want you to know I will not listen if you do. Did the Lord ever tell any of you not to pray for this wicked people? Well, I don't dare speak for you, but I can tell you God never told me to quit praying. That fills me with hope. Until the Lord says quit, there's hope. But now in chapter 13, there are two pictures here. You've doubtless looked at them 
but perhaps they'll take on a fresh meaning for you right now. Verse verse 1 of chapter 13. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist. But do not put it in water. Now, now look, let me interrupt. I know some translations like the NIV use the word belt. Well, that just proves that the translators didn't know what they were about. This is not dealing with a belt. I know that in Jeremiah's day, they didn't wear underwear like we do. But, but I, I, I'm just going to speak to you very candidly. Did you ever buy a new pair of underpants and wear them steadily for three months without washing them? I expect most of you have had enough of that pair of underpants after a single day. Or if your wife really hates to wash, maybe do wear them a couple of days. But can you imagine buying a new pair of underpants and wearing it and wearing it and wearing it and wearing it and and never washing it? So I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a crevice of the rock. Now, there's no mystery here. Some say this could not possibly be literal because it was hundreds of miles from where Jeremiah was to the Euphrates. Stop the nonsense. This is what God says. This is what God meant. If God was speaking figuratively, he would have told us so. So go bury the waistband. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord had commanded me. And it came about after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, Go to the Euphrates and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and I dug and I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. Is there any wonder? Is it not a perfectly clear picture? Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord. Just so. Will I destroy the pride 
of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, let them be just like the waistband, which is totally worthless for as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. Do you get the picture? Can you imagine anything closer to a man than his underpants? Is it not an incredible portrayal of God's desire? He longs for a people who can't get any closer or be any more intimate. Do your people understand that this is God's heart for them? This incredible closeness, intimacy with the Lord? But they didn't want that. They wanted a God whom they could call as their Savior and refuse to listen to, and when they couldn't help but hear, simply disregard what he said. But God is never tolerant of that kind of nonsense. One is either entirely Christian or not Christian at all. One has that long, oh, it's not that we're talking about perfection, but would you not say about yourself that there's nothing you want in all the world than to walk closely with Christ and to do absolutely everything he says to do. But we've raised up a people who aren't like that at all, and we've given them an assurance of salvation that is totally unwise and absurd. So the picture of the underwear, but then there's a second picture here of profound importance as well. Starting at verse 12. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every jug is to be filled with wine. And when they say to you, do we not know perfectly well that every jug is to be filled with wine? Now listen, go back just for a moment to the preceding. Verse 8, 
so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Verse 10, this wicked people who refuse to listen is not the refusal to listen evidence of pride? And so then in verse 12, when the command is given, fill every jug with wine, the pride, don't be stupid, Jeremiah. We know perfectly well what the use of a wine jar is. The American church is so proud that it blames somebody else for its own failure. And we're so clever that we can multiply ways of doing church and avoid obeying the Lord. You would think at a desperate hour like this, every church would be a house of prayer. Instead, in most churches, there's only a tiny handful that have to do the praying for the whole. And the majority, even of the preachers, would not dare for a moment to call themselves men of prayer. Pride is always the undoing of a people. But then in verse 13, say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priest, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them each against other, both the father and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, that I should not destroy them. Listen. And do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountain while you're hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness. He makes it or turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, take lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev have been locked up there's no one to open them. All Judah has been carried into exile, wholly carried into exile. Have you ever considered 
God's forcing his own people to drink. To the state of drunkenness. Is that not the picture of the church today? Did you ever sit down with pen and pen, pen paper and say to yourself, I'm going to draw up a list of all the characteristics of drunkards. Maybe somebody here came from a drunkard's home. Maybe somebody has a drunken wife. Maybe a drunken son or daughter for whom you feel great anguish. If you were to draw up a full list of the characteristics of the drunkard, you would discover you had drawn up a list of the characteristics of the American church. Drunkards get up and make a speech. They think they have given the most wonderful discourse ever given in the humankind's history, but nobody understands a word of what he was trying to say. A drunkard will go up to a harlot in a restaurant or a bar and kiss her and hug her and treat her as if she were a queen. Then he'll go home to his own wife and smash her in the face and kick her to the floor. The drunkard loses all ability to discern right from wrong. When you meet a drunkard, you have, I trust, learned to avoid him. First, his stench will help you. For a drunkard may think he's the most handsome guy on the street, but have vomited all over his own clothes and uh, not have washed for such a length of time that nobody can get near him. But drunkards get into brawls continually and if you try to investigate what the brawl was all about, it usually comes right down to nothing, just like churches that are brawling. And uh, for the most part, there's nothing underneath it all except a lot of sheer stupidity. I I'm simply saying every evidence that I see says the American evangelical church has been forced to drink the wine of God's wrath to that state where drunkenness characterizes it. Here we are on the verge of destruction, and we're pretending as if things have never, ever been better. So God gives us the picture of underwear. 
in order to convey to us his heart, his longing for a people who are near, who are close, who are intimate. And he gives us this picture of drunkenness so that we can face afresh the fact God is not without resources. When his people betray him, he doesn't move back and say, oh my, what can I do? I had so hoped that this time it would work. But now they've gone the same way as ancient Israel. Oh, I don't know what to do. No, God always knows what to do. But before he destroys the people, he gives them a call to return. And I believe that in America, we're at that juncture where we have one hope left, and that's to return to the Lord. And I wonder how many of you know God's heart in this matter. It's certainly not too late, but it will be if we go on the way we've been going. So my hope this morning was that somehow I could appeal to you to feel afresh the seriousness of the hour, and yet in great hope to call the nation back to God.